There's a way of listening to a Dharma talk. Um, for those of you who are not experienced in uh, going on retreat or being on retreat um, in this uh, new pandemic manner, um, it's different from the way that we listen to a lecture in an academic setting or in some other informational setting. Uh, and it and it's a way of listening with the whole body. Um, the, the mind is engaged, of course, and we're listening, but listening with the heart, listening uh, from a deeper place and noticing what resonates uh, as we hear certain things. And, and if other things just are not uh, resonating right now, um, we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to compare it to other teachings that we've heard. We could do that later if we want. Uh, we could listen to the talk again and you know, uh, critique it. That's you know that if that's something that's interesting or 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 notice more of the conceptual aspects. But but in in the moment. Uh, I encourage you to just um, uh, be present, be mindful, be attentive, and uh, and see, listen with the chitta. Uh, the chitta is the heart mind. And so when you ask, uh, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, they have this sense of the heart being the locus of the, the chitta, it's, I think it's in all traditions of Buddhism, um, which is a, just a, a quality of mind, um, which is not, it's, 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 uh, it's about presence. <clears throat> so I'd like to begin by asking each one of us to reflect on when I say um, the body or your body, what comes to mind? What do you feel? How do you relate to that idea of my body? And ask with the chitta. And, and I'm going to name some ways that we relate to the body uh, and, and see what it evokes for you. Maybe it won't evoke something, maybe it'll evoke something um, other and, you know, lead into some other direction. So just like what, what does it, what does it uh, stir up? And, and, and if it stirs up something that's hard to be with, that's uncomfortable, then you can always come back for a moment, take time to ground yourself, um, just to feel yourself sitting on the earth. So I'm, gonna, I'm talking about identities. I'm talking about how we 
are in the body and how we are with the body in in many different ways so so first of all when when we think of the body we're we know we're reliant on the body for our survival uh, we are alive in and through the body and um, and so so there's a certain um, sense of well we need conditions to support our bodies and so so that that's part of how we relate to the body there's a there's a kind of uh, we're dependent on food we're dependent on shelter uh, we're dependent on uh, in some way perhaps some of us more some of us less being in relationship with other people and with other beings our bodies are the seat of the senses so and we we take in the world through our senses the world come comes alive within our consciousness through our senses through our hearing through our seeing through our our smelling our, our tasting our touching uh, through the the ways that we perceive and make sense of the world we we label things we understand things to be this or that there's a that's a clock that's a lamp I'm looking at my desk and and so uh, so we take in the world through our senses we situate ourselves within an environment um, so that's part of how we relate to the body and these are pretty universal ways uh, as human beings um, we experience pleasure and pain through the body um, we experience aging sickness and death in the body and so knowing that we all consciously unconsciously to some extent more or less have a sense of um, our mortality and perhaps fear around that um, most people live with fear of mortality uh, and and um, and some people have less of that it might be through spiritual practice it might be through other kinds of experiences so that's those those are pretty universal human um, existential ways of relating to the body further we we have other kinds of identities connected to the body so our gender identity when we think of the body um, how do we relate to a sense of gender and uh, it can be very fluid it can be um, very kind of compartmentalized um, there can be a sense of ease and acceptance there can be inner conflict um, interiorized from how what's been reflected back in the world to us about our gender identity 
a, it's part of our identity. It's part of how we feel about the body. Our race and ethnicity. So race may be a social construct. It is. And it's also very alive and operative in the world. And, um, and so what's reflected back to people who have lighter skin, who have darker skin, um, ethnicities, different, different features, um, facial features, bodily features. What does the society we live in or societies that somebody might have grown up in, um, growing up as a, as a brown-skinned person in, on the Caribbean islands might be very different from growing up as a brown-skinned person in Louisiana or Montreal. So, so how, what have we internalized about uh, the body, the color of the body, the shape of the body, the features of the body? And, and so that's part of our identity. So, so um, it's, it's what we, it's how we relate to the body. It's how we feel about our bodies. So male, female, our sexual orientation also. Um, ethnicity. Uh, culture. So who are our ancestors? Who, who, do, who do you feel are your ancestors? And how, how our, our ancestors, our bodies come from our ancestors, our DNA comes from our ancestors? Do, do we feel connected to them? Do we feel that we've received wisdom from them? Do we feel we've received trauma from them? Is it something that is a source of nourishment to our hearts? Or conflict? More identity factors. How do we present to others? How do we feel that we present to others? How do we feel? How do we perhaps project from past experiences onto others how they are seeing us? Do we feel that we are attractive and, and that word has a wide range of meaning? Uh, just that that people enjoy being in our presence because of how we present. How do we present as a socioeconomic being, somebody who is um, coming from certain 
class structures has certain experiences. So how do we, how do we hold ourselves? Uh, how do we walk into a room? What's our tribe? How do we dress? How do we paint our bodies, arrange our hair, pierce the body, bedeck ourselves with ornaments? Do we do this as part of a mainstream or a countercultural tribe, quote unquote? So again, these these are just all identities. I'm just kind of washing through a whole lot of identities and and how we feel about the body and do we enjoy, do we suffer because of the messages that are reflected back to us? Do we feel that we are falling short? Do we feel that we're in rebellion? <clears throat> we also hold trauma in the bodies, in our bodies. So, so the contraction of the heart, the um, the tensing of the body when certain circumstances present themselves, uh, involuntary, just coming from the body memory of of physical or emotional trauma, um, and so we we may feel that our bo bodies are places of vulnerability. We see our, our bodies as the seed of pain and pleasure, hungers, sexual arousal, fear. Uh, we lash out when we feel threatened. We hug those we love. We comfort with our touch or a gentle caress. So all of those engagements in the body. We judge the body. You know, as as uh, I mentioned, we may feel our body is somehow wrong, or not acceptable, or or falls short of some ideal. And we may also take joy in our bodies when we dance, when we if we're athletes, if we have skills, gardening, uh, making things, um, different kinds of expression. Um, enjoying the beauty of the bodies, the eroticism of the body, the body relating to nature. So, so the body is the seed of all of this. And so one thing that most people most one way that most people relate to their bodies is that it's something separate from the space around them, separate from other bodies, separate from other objects in a, in a space, and that somehow we are these bodies and we, we move through a space which is external to us. And so um, that sense of separateness uh, and that somehow I am 
I am this body which has a, a kind of fixed identity. That's what we're inquiring into in our practice. And we do this from where we are in all of those other ways that I spoke about, about how we relate to the, our bodies. All of these things have an impact on how we enter into that path. And um, and 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 that sense of our body also, uh, we could put air quotes around that because if I really, if this body was really mine in the sense of I owned it, then I would control it and I would say mm, aging sickness and death uh-uh not for me so so is it really ours do we own it we take responsibility for it we make choices about the body but how you know do we own it is something that are we question uh, in the path of understanding and liberation. And how we relate to the body also, I want to highlight that that is also an evolving thing. We might, you know, we, we might remember how five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, we related to the body in certain ways and how that's changed in a very profound way. Uh, so, so that sense of identity in the body is something that's evolving. And so, um, so I'd like to read. Uh, I, I'm reading this book, and uh, and I think, and it's very relevant to this reflection. It's a book. Um, I'm going to show it in the camera uh, by. Reverend Earthlin, uh, Zenju Earthlin Manuel, called The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And um, yeah, uh, Carl, if, if you could kindly put that in the chat, I'd, I'd be grateful for that. Um, it's, a, it's a really beautiful book. And uh, she is a... Um, uh, a black, uh, bisexual, uh, Zen, I, I believe she's a Zen priest, um, and she, she tells this story in the book about when she was just a young kid, I think uh, something like um, eight or ten years old, and um, she was standing out in front of her house with her mother and, and, and a neighbor. And a little girl down the block had just died. And her mother was speaking to the neighbor about it and they were kind of couching their, their words to not say it directly. And, um, and Earthlin knew what they were talking about and she said, uh, and she said, Valerie died. And, um, and her mother 
acknowledged that and 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 they uh, and they talked a little bit more about it and and her mother said we're all going to die and and there was no fear in her voice and then I'll I'll read it was Valerie's death that sparked questions for me about living and suffering the pumping of my heart felt different I was perishable my parents could not save me that day I embarked on a lifetime quest to grasp the reality of this body. What is this body? Why is this color, this shape, hated by some and loved by others? My very first Dharma questions in life were given to the, to the suffering I experienced as a black girl child. The French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty said, we know not through our intellect, but through our experience. We perceive the world through our bodies. If the world of perception resides within the body, then the path of spirituality or dharma must include the body. The path must include the facts of our being raced, gendered, and sexualized sentient beings. George Yancey, an African-American philosopher and, and the author of Black Bodies, White Gazes, reminds us that our bodies are socially constituted within a lived history and a lived experience. This lived experience shapes the question of a spiritual path. In my case, for example, questions about oppression, trauma, and identity within the racist, sexist, sexist and homophobic context have shaped, shaped the particular path of my life as I walk it. At the same time, this lived experience is mutable and is shifting because diverse ways of living constantly multiply and perspectives change. In other words, our bodies are not strictly objective. We are ever-evolving sentient beings. No matter how hard we try, assuming objectivity with regard to our embodiment is a transient mental process and is impacted by impermanence. So we need to see how we perceive our body our own and others and embrace it in our understanding of what the body is. We can give our body, our whole being and all our multidimensionality, a space of kindness, safety, acceptance, to allow it to settle and to live out fully what it is. Just be what it is. And as I mentioned before, the Buddha doesn't speak explicitly of this. Uh, the, the emphasis is seeing the body is not, that the body is not what we think it is. Some object which is in some permanent separate way existing in space apart from other objects. The practices are intended to make us question that ordinary assumption and 
experience directly that the body is a process. We could call it an open system within many, many systems. It's dynamic, always in flux, in interdependence. And this, this system is precarious. And it will inevitably break down, malfunction, need repair, and expire. And what comes to fore for me as I reflect on this, and I reflect on all the multiplicity of identities and the way that we experience body and our own body and others' bodies and all the different factors that come into play in that. The sense of the centrality of the body and the preciousness of life that all beings want to live, that we have the potential to wake up in our lives. It seems to me that the first precept not to take life and to support the life of beings is such an important part of mindfulness of the body. So I'd like to just spend a little time reflecting on how we can bring this quality of affirming the preciousness of life, of cultivating this quality of non-harming, of creating a sense of safety and support and welcome and inclusiveness to all beings. Let's take a moment and ask ourselves, first of all, do I respect my own life? Do I uphold my own life? The fullness of my life, the fullness of who I am. Do I welcome all of my parts, my body, my identity, my aches and pains, as well as the pleasures of being an embodied being. And of course, we're talking about body, but it extends to the heart, the mind. Is this, is this mind a harsh critic of this being in its wholeness? in our wholeness. And then considering that, we can ask ourselves, do I knowingly cause harm to other beings? Do I actively take measures to support the safety and well-being of living beings? This question is an exploration of the heart. It's not to make us feel, oh, you know, I fall short. I'm so, you know, I eat meat. I, I travel in, I, you know, in an airplane. I, all of the things that we might criticize ourselves for. 
Yeah. It's just in this moment, we can ask ourselves in this moment, what can I do to uphold the lives, to bring to bring consciousness into supporting and protecting life? And what does that mean? What are the questions that arise around that? It's not a list of things that we have to stop doing or we have to do. And it's it's actually not possible to live without some degree of violence to living beings. Walking, breathing, even even cutting a stalk of broccoli. You know, that broccoli life force is reaching out to the sun and it and in its way it wants to live. So you know, uh, all things want to live, all living things, so-called sentient and so-called non-sentient. So how do I choose in this moment to support life and well-being, to care, to bring consciousness and mindfulness? So you notice I'm asking a lot of questions. <laughs> so that's, that's the practice, to to inquire. Uh, when we think that we know, when we think we, ha- we have the answers, that this is the way, that self-righteousness, it may in some way, the practices that we're very, you know, proud of and we think are so virtuous may in some way important ways to support life and the judgment and self-righteousness and in other ways rejects and pushes away other ways of being. Zen peacemakers, um, it's a uh, tradition, a lineage of, of Zen uh, founded by um, Roshi, Bernie, Glassman, among others. Um, uh, a, a tradition of very radical compassion and inclusiveness. Um, their statement about the first precept, uh, refraining from harming living beings, is very simple. Recognizing that I am not separate from all that is. This is the precept of non-killing. Recognizing that I am not separate from all that is. So, first of all, to support our own lives is to include all of who we are. To turn toward what is painful, to turn toward what we have perhaps been taught to or feel we ought to or have to reject. Maybe that pushing away, that turning away, has created a kind of numbness, a sense of being cut off from part of who we are. 
and turning toward that, opening up, allowing, welcoming. Even if it's difficult, even if it's challenging and painful, it's a step up, it's more alive than the numbness. It's more alive than the cutting off, the closing off our heart to a part of who we are. And we can bring the wisdom of mindfulness of knowing that the painful experience of opening up is also transient, is also impermanent. It's also something that moves through us and changes our relationship and that we can begin again in a new way of relation of, of relating to this body, this heart, this mind. Again, um, Zenju Earthland Manual says, we have the capacity to see our subjectivity, to see our embodiment as useful for the spiritual path, to see our embodiment as creating meaning for our lives, and to see it as the location of awakening to seriously consider the ways in which our spiritual paths are shaped by our multiple identities and subjectivities is the way of tenderness. To awaken from within our unique embodiment is to awaken collective awareness. And so in this way, our spiritual practice and our spiritual awakening is not disconnected from social activism because this ripples out into the world and how we engage in the world and in life. So can we love and allow all the different ways we experience the body? Can we allow these different ways to feel safe accepted, not judged. And when we don't, when those old habits of rejection, when those old habits of not, not allowing, not of closing the door, can we begin to notice and begin to forgive ourselves? That might be the first step, is just to forgive ourselves from how we have closed the door to part of who we are and how we've closed the door to others by judging, by excluding, out of fear, out of ignorance, out of protecting our own sense of comfort. Others with whom we share so much, can we offer this safety and belonging as best we can. And give ourselves the invitation, the challenge, to learn how to welcome and include all beings.
I'd like to end uh, this talk with a poem um, that I found in a book that was given to me, lovely um, present, uh, called Poetry of Presence. It's an anthology of mindfulness poems. And this um, poem is called For Calling the Spirit Back from Wandering the Earth in Its Human Feet by Joy Harjo. Put down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote control. Open the door, then close it behind you. Take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth, gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing, it will give your spirit lift to fly to the star's ears and back. Acknowledge this earth who has cared for you since you were a dream planting itself precisely within your parents' desire. Let your moccasin feet take you to the encampment of the guardians who have known you before time, who will be there after time. They sit before the fire that has been there without time. Let the earth stabilize your post-colonial insecure jitters. Be respectful of the small insects, birds, and animal people who accompany you. Ask their forgiveness for the harm we humans have brought down upon them. Don't worry. The heart knows the way. Though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, wars, and those who will despise you because they despise themselves. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred, a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle, to the fire kept burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. You must clean yourself with cedar, sage, or other healing plant. Cut the, cut the ties you have to failure and shame. Let go the pain you are holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask for forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. Those helpers take many forms, animal, element, bird, angel, saint, stone, or ancestor. 
Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment, and human abuse. You must call it in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would a beloved child. Welcome your spirit back from its wandering. It may return in pieces, in tatters. Gather them together. They will be happy to be found after being lost for so long. Your spirit will need to sleep a while after it is bathed and given clean clothes. Now you can have a party. Invite everyone you know who loves and supports you. Keep room for those who have no place else to go. Make a giveaway and remember, keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person find their way through the dark. Let's breathe together for a few minutes. So we'll take a 10-minute break uh, and um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.